Derek Chauvin has been charged with three very serious crimes. Second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter for his role in the death of George Floyd. You'll hear from me in this seminar on criminal law why second-degree and third-degree murder does not seem to be applicable in this case and why the only charge that seems applicable to the facts of this case is second-degree manslaughter. So in other words, we may see acquittals on the murder charge and possibly a conviction on the manslaughter charge. How will the public react to that? You'll hear on The Dirt Show. Today we're going to be doing a law school-type seminar, a rigorous analysis of the case against Derek Chauvin. You'll remember who Derek Chauvin is. He is the man who was accused of murdering uh, George Floyd. His trial is uh, about to begin. Jurors are being selected. And uh, just the other day, the uh, Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, a man with a very, very sordid background of racial bigotry himself, having been an admirer and supporter and booster of uh, the Reverend Farrakhan, an overt uh, anti-Semite, anti-white, anti-gay, you name it, anti-anything, everything. And uh, Keith Ellison was one of his guys and a big supporter. And now he's the Attorney General of Minnesota, and he just raised the stakes in the case. Originally, uh, he had indicted uh, Chauvin in, on two counts, one of second-degree murder and the second of um, second-degree manslaughter. And just the other day, he included third-degree murder. So what we're going to do today, it's as if it's a first-year criminal law class. We're going over the law of homicide, and we're going to analyze each of the three statutes. You won't be bored. They're very interesting statutes, but put on your thinking caps. This is criminal law one. If I was still teaching at Harvard, in this case, we're in the news I would be taking an hour out of teaching homicide and giving the students the statutes, sending it out to them, and asking them to analyze each of the statutes and how the facts, the alleged facts, fit into the statutes and what general principles of law apply when you have ambiguities or conflict. So let's begin now with uh, second-degree murder. He can't be charged with first-degree murder because first-degree murder in Minnesota is very specific, killing a cop, uh, premeditated. Nobody would charge that the crime here was premeditated. So they didn't charge him with first-degree murder. But second-degree murder says that um, a person uh, who causes the death of a human being with intent, intent to affect the death. And I just don't see any evidence that would support the conclusion that Chauvin specifically intended to kill the victim in this case. Uh, negligence, uh, recklessness, uh, many of those are probably at work, but intent to kill does not seem to be something that the state will be able to prove in this case. Well, you can get around intent to kill in second-degree murder if you can show that without intent, it was committed as part of another felony that wouldn't operate here. The felony has to be an independent felony. For example, you go into a bank to rob the bank and you inadvertently uh, shoot the gun or it falls to the floor 
and it kills somebody. That's a classic case of felony murder, but it has to be an independent felony. It can't be a felony that's closely connected to the death as what occurred here. In any event, he wasn't committing a felony. He was effectuating an arrest. The arrest might have been uh, improper, and it, in my view, seemed to be uh, improper. Disproportional force applied to somebody who was being arrested for passing allegedly a $20 counterfeit bill. I'm not here to defend or justify anything Chauvin did. He should have been fired. That was just. I'm here to analyze the statutes to see what statute he could be convicted under. And then we'll talk about the broader issue of what happens when you have a great public outcry for a conviction and threats of violence in the event that there's no conviction. We'll get to those issues in just a minute. So Clause one doesn't apply. This was not a felony murder case. Another one applies when, without intent to kill, uh, unintentionally inflicting or attempting to inflict bodily harm. That seems to apply. But then there's a when provision. When the perpetrator is under an order for protection. So that statute applies only when you have a protection order, an order from the court that says you can't go near that person. So I have to tell you, it, uh, uh, murder too, just doesn't apply. It just doesn't apply. And I think that one thing you would really want, if you're the defense attorney, is to uh, ask for a bill of particulars, saying, you say that murder too applies. Which provision of murder too applies? Are you arguing felony murder? Are you arguing intentional murder? Unless you can show that you have a specific provision that you're charging him under, the court legitimately would have to throw out murder two. So let's turn to murder three. That's the one that was just added, and that's the most ambiguous one under Minnesota law. Whoever, without intent to affect the death of any person, so that seems to apply because he didn't have the intent to kill. He obviously had other intentions, but not the intent to kill. Causes the death, okay, we're going to get to that because his defense is that he didn't cause the death. The death was caused by the drugs that were in the body, but that's another issue. So let's, for the moment, assume that they can prove causation. Certainly they can allege causation. That's enough to get in front of a jury allegations that his putting a knee on the neck caused the death. So they get over that causation. But then we get to, by perpetrating an act, and here are the words, eminently dangerous to others. To others, and evincing a depraved mind without regard to human life is guilty of murder in the third degree. Well, it depends then on how you define the word others. Uh, you would think the word others means other than the victim himself. For example, if you're shooting at him, uh, like in that case, remember where the police were effectuating a no knock arrest and they were shot at, and then they shot back and killed the woman, but also endangered the lives of people in the other room. That would be a perfect example of, um, of um, a murder three, third-degree murder. But here, there was no gun. The only possible victim was the man whose neck had his knee on it. So that doesn't seem to apply uh, and and so unless you define others to include the victim himself, which is a very, very strained reading. Now, the best proof that murder one and murder two and murder three don't apply 
is to look at what clearly does apply, and that's manslaughter in the second degree. Now, I'll read you what manslaughter in the second degree says, and it's as if it was written specifically to cover Chauvin. There couldn't be a clearer case of an allegation of an alleged crime that comes as clearly within manslaughter to as this one does. A person who causes the death of another by any of the following means, etc. And now here's means number one. By the person's culpable negligence, whereby the person, that's the defendant, creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. Glove fit couldn't be closer. That's what the charges in this case are, that he engaged in negligent conduct, maybe even reckless conduct, but not intentional conduct, and he created an unreasonable risk. And he consciously, he consciously understood that he was taking the chance of causing death by putting the knee on the neck with the person yelling, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. It's a no-brainer. This is a manslaughter in the second-degree case. It is not a second-degree murder case. It is not a third-degree murder case. And now let me introduce you to two other principles of criminal law which will prove my point conclusively. One is an ancient principle that says if you have two or three criminal statutes, that may arguably apply. Two of them are vague and general, and one of them fits specifically. You have to go with the one that fits specifically. You have to assume the legislature intended that the statute they wrote to fit this conduct be the statute under which the person is prosecuted. You resolve all those doubts in favor of the defendant, and you apply the statute that seems to fit most closely the conduct at issue. Under that principle, no doubt whatsoever, this is a manslaughter to case. Then there's another principle of criminal law, constitutional law as well. It's called the principle of lenity. Lenity is just a non-fancy word for leniency, but it is a statutory rule, and it is a common law rule, and it is a constitutional rule. And that is if there are two possible interpretations of statutes, one of which goes against the defendant, and one of which favors the defendant, and they're equally plausible, equally plausible, you must apply the lesser statute. So the principle of lenity would obviously demand that he be tried under second-degree manslaughter, not second-degree or third-degree murder. Moreover, the principle of lenity applies when there are equally applicable statutes. Not here. The statutes here aren't equally applicable. Manslaughter fits like a glove. The others fit like a bad shoe, like a size three shoe on a size 11 foot. They just don't fit. And so I don't know his defense lawyers. I don't know his defense. And I have no sympathy for him as a police officer or as a person. Thank God he is no longer a police officer. And my own personal hope is that he has to pay a, a price for this, and the price that I think he should pay is second-degree uh, manslaughter. So I have no brief for, 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 for him, but the law seems so clear. So why is Keith Ellison insistent 
on overcharging in this case. Well, in every one of these Black Lives Matter cases that we've had, the most notorious one, the Florida one, they've all involved overcharging because the public demands, this is a murder, we have to have murder, murder, murder. But the public doesn't get to define what the law is. The legislature gets to define it and gets to define it, define it earlier. You can't make new laws that apply retroactively to conduct that occurred later. And so you have a situation now where an elected attorney general, and he was very much a politician, he was first a member of Congress, and then uh, he came under a lot of criticism, and uh, he decided to run for um, the uh, attorney generalship, and he won. So he's an elected official. He probably wants to be a senator, maybe wants to be president. He's an elected official, and he cannot abide the possibility that a jury might acquit or might not find murder because he'll get blasted if he's the attorney general who presides over basically a prosecution that doesn't result in what the public wants. The public wants a murder prosecution. They saw it with their own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. But I saw it through the eyes of a criminal law professor, not through the eyes of a member of the public who was outraged at what happened. I saw it through the eyes of a criminal law professor, and a criminal law professor's eyes always have to go through the statute first. And so I went through the three statutes, and I'm interested in any of you calling, if any of you are lawyers, you know, the uh, attorney general has hired this very, very eminent uh, constitutional lawyer to advise in the case. I invite him to come on this show and defend charging second degree or third degree murder. He won't do it. Um, uh, I invite anybody who believes that this is second or third degree murder under Minnesota law to come on the show and debate me and, and discuss it with me. Uh, it doesn't apply. Second and third degree murder just don't apply. Manslaughter applies. Second degree manslaughter applies. But what's going to happen now? Uh, if he were to be acquitted, if he were to be outright acquitted, there would be violence. There would be riots in, in the street. And uh, one can easily predict uh, that will happen, not only on the streets of Minneapolis, but on streets all over the United States. Well, there are several things that should happen. Number one, expectations shouldn't be raised. And that's the problem with Keith Ellison and other prosecutors. They're looking at today's headlines. And they raise expectations. Happened in Baltimore as well. Happened all over the country. You raise expectations. You tell the public, oh, we're going to convict him of murder. Second degree murder. Third degree murder. We're going to convict him of murder. He's a murderer. Uh, and then they don't. They fail. They get a manslaughter conviction or an acquittal or a hung jury, which is possible in a case like this. And then the riots occur because of failed expectations. Oh, my God, we expected a murder prosecution. We expected a murder conviction. All we got was a hung jury or a manslaughter conviction or um, an acquittal. We can't take that. That must be unjust. Let's take to the streets. So that's the real problem. And you have jurors. You have jurors at the moment, jurors from Minneapolis, from the area. And these jurors no matter what they say on voir dire, where they're being questioned, no matter what they say, no matter whether or not they say they didn't prejudge or they're not familiar or they haven't read, everybody living in a city in Minnesota is going to be afraid for their lives of what happens if there's an acquittal or a hung jury or a conviction of a lesser offense in this case. They're all going to be worried about their children. They're all going to be worried about their homes. They're all going to be worried about uh, police uh, and what's going to happen. Look, in this very city, there's an area now that's 
forbidden to police, and Keith Ellison, the attorney general, hadn't done anything about it. The idea of keeping police out of a neighborhood, that's outrageous and illegal. Uh, and it denies protection to the people in the neighborhood who don't agree with the politicians who want to keep the police out of the neighborhood as a form of protest. Look, this killing, the killing of George Floyd, is the most notorious, influential crime of the last quarter of a century. I'm not now talking about political issues like the invasion of the Capitol, ordinary murder cases. It changed the world. It created these protests, many of them legitimate, many of the concerns legitimate, but it was the most influential case, most influential killing in modern times. It changed the world. We saw protests in Paris and in Prague and in Tel Aviv, uh, you name it. It's spread all over the world in London. And the idea that you can conduct business as usual and just have an ordinary trial uh, where it occurred uh, is just not realistic. The judge has to take certain precautions. First of all, I think the case should be moved out of Minneapolis and out of any urban center and moved to a isolated rural area. It should have jurors who don't know very much about the case and don't have a stake in the outcome. It should involve jurors who aren't frightened that if they do justice, if they do the right thing, if they follow the statutes, that there will be riots in their neighborhoods and friends will be endangered, family will be endangered. That should never be on the mind. The lawyer for the victim here says, this is a referendum about American justice. No, 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 no. It's not a referendum. It's a trial. Trials are not referendums. Trials are not supposed to do social justice, big justice, mega justice, justice writ large. That's for the political system. That's for legislatures. That's for maybe judges in constitutional cases. It's not for a jury trial to determine the culpability of a particular defendant. No, this is not a referendum. This is a trial where the defendant is presumed innocent, where the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed the elements of the specific statute under which he was charged and under which he is to be convicted. This is a trial. Yes, it's a test. It's not a test of social justice. That happens outside the courtroom. It's a test of whether our legal system can deal with cases when social justice issues may demand a different verdict from what the facts and the law demand. There is one other possible uh, remedy that a court might impose. A, it should be very, very rigorous in selecting jurors. It should give the defense uh, additional peremptory challenges because the defense is facing such a hostile uh, audience. Uh, maybe it should give both sides more peremptory challenges. Let's resolve all doubts about jurors in favor of eliminating any jurors that might have any degree of prejudice or any degree of self-involvement or any degree of self-fare, even if it takes a long time. Let's make sure in the end we get 12 jurors who don't, not only are not themselves prejudiced, but who don't appear to be prejudiced. In this case, justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. So one issue that has uh, been debated and is very controversial, particularly in New York and particularly in mafia-type cases, is whether you have an anonymous jury, whether the jurors ultimately selected and the alternatives, 
Their names are kept secret from the media. Their names are kept secret from everybody but the defense and the prosecution. The defense, obviously, has to know their names. The prosecution has to know their names in order to investigate them and see whether or not their answers to their questions are accurate and truthful. But you and I, the rest of us, the public, the media, we don't get to know the names. That gives the jurors a sense, a slight sense at least, of protection. But it also sends a message to the jurors. Hey, you got something to be frightened about here. In the mafia cases, it sends a message. Hey, these guys on trial are so bad that you have to worry that if you convict them, they might kill your family or kill you. That's the message sent when you have anonymous juries in mafia-type cases. In this case, it may be the opposite. It may send a message to the jurors. If you acquit, you have to really be worried uh, that there might be retaliation taken against you and your family. We already know that there have been threats against people who have defended in the court of public opinion some of the police officers who have been accused of terrible misconduct and causing the death of the African-American uh, people who are under their uh, control. So this is going to be a very, very difficult uh, trial to conduct fairly, particularly difficult if the jurors' names are known, particularly difficult if it's done in an urban center in Minneapolis, particularly difficult when we have elected prosecutors, elected judges, uh, and we have uh, a tremendous call campaign for it to be a referendum. Uh, you know, if I were the defense attorney, I'd immediately move to prohibit the lawyer for the victim from speaking in the public about a referendum, trying to persuade the potential jurors that if they vote for acquittal or vote against murder charges, they are on the wrong side of a referendum about social justice. Surely a prosecutor can't use that in its closing or opening argument. If a prosecutor ever dared to say this is a referendum about social, social justice in America, uh, there'd be a mistrial, there'd be a retrial, and the prosecutor would be appropriately disciplined for bringing politics and ideology into a criminal trial. So we're going to watch this trial carefully in the, in the weeks to come. Uh, again, not because I have any particular sympathy for the uh, defendant in the case. My sympathies are all with the victim in this case. When I saw that video, I was just outraged beyond belief. I didn't know, of course, and still don't know. That's going to be an issue in the case. Whether what he did was policy uh, within the police department, um, that's been disputed by the police chief, but that's going to be raised by the defense. If so, then the blame has to be shared between the particular police officer and the people who make the policy. I didn't know when I saw the videotape that the defendant's uh, uh, defense might be that the victim uh, was uh, drugged and uh, might have died uh, as a result of the drugs either alone or in combination. Now, under the law, again, there's a little bit of confusion under the law about causation. I said I'd get back to causation. So in torts, um, which is you collect money if you've, hurt, if you've been hurt by somebody, uh, you don't have to prove that the tort by itself caused the injury. The tort in combination with a number of other factors uh, may have caused the injury. 
Uh, it's called the eggshell skull doctrine. If you punch somebody in the head, and normally a person would recover from a punch in the head, it wouldn't be lethal, but this person had uh, a problem with his skull. We call it the eggshell skull, but that's just a metaphor. And the result of the punch, coupled with his medical problem, produced his death or a stroke or serious injury. The law of torts says in most jurisdictions that you have to pay full compensation if you are a significant cause of the problem. Uh, there are some jurisdictions in which it could be divided, in which you can have uh, the amount of money divided if the cause is shared between several people. For example, if a person's killed in an automobile accident and he wasn't wearing a safety belt, uh, then maybe you say there was contributory negligence and you divide the outcome of the trial. That's in torts. Criminal law, it's different, and it's not really resolved and settled. What happens if a person uh, died as the result largely of pre-existing conditions or drugs, but the crime itself was a contributing factor? Uh, in some jurisdictions, the issue is how significant was the factor. If it was just a minor factor, a trivial factor, then there's an acquittal. Uh, if it was a significant contributing factor, the term that's often used is proximate cause. And if you want a term that's very difficult to define, it's proximate cause. So that issue will be presented to the jury as well. What caused the death of George Floyd? And plainly, the knee on the neck contributed and probably contributed significantly. But there are autopsies, and there are going to be medical reports, and there are going to be conflicting medical reports, and there are going to be expert witnesses. And in the end, there will be an instruction by the judge, and the jury will have to make a decision about whether the facts in this case satisfy the criteria for causation. So that's my seminar for today. My conclusion, and if I were conducting a seminar at Harvard, I wouldn't come to any conclusion. I would leave it to the students. I would just lay out the issues. But hey, this is my podcast. I owe you my conclusion. So based on what I know now, and I know a lot about this case, but based upon what I know now, there is no plausible case for second-degree murder under the statute. I think there is a very weak case, and one that wouldn't satisfy constitutional standards, under third-degree murder, the charge that was just added. But the trump card that proves that second- and third-degree second third murder would be unconstitutional as applied to this test, to this case, is second-degree manslaughter. Secondary manslaughter is so clear. It so clearly defines what happens here. And I'm just going to read it again one more time to make sure. The person's culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. That's what is alleged here. And I think a bill of particulars will help shape and formulate the trial. So I'm not here to give advice to the defense. I'm not here to give advice to the prosecution. I am here to give advice to my listeners and viewers and to help you uh, understand the trial as it unfolds and the motions that will be made. There'll be a motion probably to strike second degree murder. There'll be a motion to strike first degree, uh, third degree murder. There'll be a motion for a bill of particulars. I think there's already a motion to change the venue. The judges ruled against it and said he would reconsider it. 
at some later point, if there were obvious prejudice, there will be motions about the jurors. There will be effect attempts to strike uh, jurors under both peremptory challenges, which means a challenge without having to give reason, but you can't do it on racial grounds or gender grounds. And there will be uh, challenges based on uh, uh, cause. And so the, the trial will unfold. Apparently, it will be televised. And so uh, if you're interested, you can watch it. But please watch it with the statutes in front of you and with the guidance that I've given you today in this seminar. And uh, as I said, I've given you my conclusions. Um, I welcome your conclusions. And uh, I urge you, go on Google, Google Minnesota second-degree murder, Minnesota third-degree murder, Minnesota manslaughter. Have it in front of you as you watch the trial. Look at the terms of the statute. Go back and read some of the cases if you want to really conduct a seminar and really be educated, or just watch the trial and let me know what your views are. Let me know what you think of the public outcry in this case and whether you're fearful that justice may not be able to be done in the face of uh, crowds and mobs and, and the public and the media demanding their definition of justice, often ignoring the statutes that govern a criminal prosecution. So let's hear your views about this case on The Dirt Show. Now it's time for my favorite part of every podcast, The Wits to The Dirt Show, the callers, first caller. Hi, Attorney Dershowitz. This is Lynn. I totally agree with you with young man who called out in frustration, kike bitch. Uh, I believe he doesn't know what kike is all about. I think I, I said in my previous phone call, my grandma came from Germany. She used kike uh, for what I was told that um, kike meant, just like you said, that uh, with German Jews, that they considered the other Jews uh, less um, uh, inferior, um, not as smart as uh, German Jews. So you are right about that. And he definitely uh, shouldn't be punished and canceled. And this is, uh, this is what's happening in America. Cancel culture, it's horrible. And I still like to know how can we fight this? How can we um, go about pushing back on this cancel culture? and get back to a, a better place in America. So thank you. Bye. That's a great call. A very interesting. Um, just to bring you up to date, the National Basketball Association has imposed a $50,000 fine and a one-week suspension um, uh, on Myers Leonard and required him to go to the Anti-Defamation League and learn about the history of the, the word uh, kike. Um, and um, I think that's about right. Um, if the league had the authority to fine him $250,000, I wouldn't be objecting to that either. Apparently, there are limits on the amount of fines that can be Im imposed. $50,000 is a little bit of a slap on the wrist to somebody who's making $10 million a year, but at least it sends a symbolic message. And the important thing is to have some proportional response. You know, it's so interesting. We think about the word kike and we think about how much discrimination and, and racism we've always had in this country. If I'm right that the word kike begins with the German Jews demeaning Polish Jews, saying they're not intellectual, they're not smart enough, 
and using the word kike to describe the kikel, the circle that Polish Jews used to sign their names if they were illiterate, if they couldn't sign their name and they didn't want to use an X. You know, you think about what Polish Jews have contributed to this country, uh, how many Nobel Prizes, uh, uh, how many uh, inventions, and how much uh, a contribution have been made by Polish Jews, uh, the same as by people of every ethnic background, every group. We are such a country of uh, immigrants who have benefited so much from immigrants. And the first generation were always demeaned. You know, when Polish Jews first came to America, they many of them were subjected to an IQ test. And the IQ tests were very primitive. Of course, they focused more on cultural than on intellectual issues. And the early IQ test concluded that Polish Jews were intellectually inferior. And you look today at the accomplishments of Eastern European Jews. I would suspect the same thing would be true of immigrants from other parts of the world as well. Uh, we benefit enormously. Look, um, Joe Biden got in trouble the other day for uh, saying that uh, Indians, that is Americans from the country of India, from the subcontinent, are, are so uh, influential. They, they're taking over our country. He meant that, obviously, as a as a great compliment. And, uh, you know, if you look at the contributions of, um, of Asian Americans to this country, they're phenomenal. And yet Asian Americans today are subject to, to hate crimes. We just have to get rid of every, every element of racism. And remember that what you call an S-hole country <clears throat> today may end up producing the person who cures cancer. So let's not ever demean a country, demean a people, demean a group. Let's always apply Dr. Martin Luther King's notion, we judge a person not by the color of their skin or the nation of their origin, but by the quality of their character. Doesn't the First Amendment to our Constitution grant an implied right to hear the things that are freely spoken? Can you have the right to free speech without a right to hear that speech? Thank you. That's a great question. I just recently wrote an article about that, so thank you for anticipating what I wrote about. Yes, the First Amendment includes the right to listen to speakers, and the, the case that I gave as an example is let's assume you had uh, a person speaking from outside the country who was not allowed in the country, not a citizen, not somebody with First Amendment rights, but an audience in America who wanted to listen to her. That happened in the Lila Khalid case, a horrible terrorist. Uh, who would be banned from the country and arrested if she tried to come into the country, but students at the University of San Francisco, for whatever reason, uh, wanted to listen to her. Not only did they want to listen to her, but many of them agreed with her and wanted to praise her. Uh, they had a First Amendment right, not to have her come into the country, but to listen to her on Zoom or Skype or something else. So I agree with you. The First Amendment grants uh, two rights. The free speech part of the First Amendment grants two rights. The right of the speaker to speak and the right of the audience to hear. And even if the speaker should be banned, and the same thing is true of cancel culture. If you don't like a particular speaker, it's wrong to ban that speaker if an audience wants to hear that speaker, because you're denying the audience the right to their aspect of free speech. Great question. Thanks. Hi, Alan. This is Evelyn from South Carolina. My question to you is, how do you justify defending someone who is obviously guilty? such as Jeffrey Epstein, who's an example I can think of other controversial figures you've defended in the past. And 
how do you live with yourself knowing that this person is guilty? You defend them and they are found not guilty and can continue on with their crimes or not be punished for the crimes that they have been, um, that they have committed. I enjoy your podcast. Thank you. That's a great question. Of course, it's a question I've been asked over and over again in my career because of the, I don't know, 250 or 300 cases that I've handled. Uh, obviously, in criminal cases, the vast majority of my clients have probably been guilty. Uh, thank God for that. Would you want to live in a country where the vast majority of people charged with crime are innocent? That may be Iran, China, the former Soviet Union, Cuba. It's not the United States of America. The vast majority of people accused of crime are are guilty. They may not be guilty of the specific crime, as I mentioned today in the uh, Chauvin case. Um, uh, he may be guilty, but not of the crime of which he's charged. So um, better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. So I'm going to continue to defend people. Most of the time when I defend people, I don't know whether they're guilty or innocent or somewhere in between. Take the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, when he called me to defend him, he was being charged with uh, two relatively minor offenses. Uh, he had been getting massages from women who were 19, 20, 21 years old and paying them money to give them massages. And some of them may have ended up with happy endings, uh, pretty, pretty minor offenses in a part of Palm Beach where um, massage parlors were rampant and this was going on all over Palm Beach and people weren't being arrested. And I knew Jeffrey Epstein from Harvard and from his contributions to Harvard and from seminars that he gave. And I agreed to represent him. I had no idea that uh, he might be guilty of far more serious uh, crimes. And at the time, all they had was a couple of people who managed to sneak by uh, his uh, uh, process uh, for making sure everybody was over the age of 18. They presented false IDs, etc. So I defended him on that charge, and we worked out a plea bargain with the state whereby he'd plead guilty to uh, having uh, sex with underage persons, and he would get uh, registered as a sex offender and plead guilty as a felony. Then it went to the federal uh, government, and the federal government had to prove that there was interstate transportation, and there wasn't. So we were able to persuade the feds that they couldn't succeed in a... Um, a federal prosecution, but they could succeed in a state prosecution, so he pleaded uh, guilty. That's what criminal defense lawyers do. Without criminal defense lawyers, we would have no system. We would be China. We would be Iran. We would be Russia. If you want to have a system where innocent people aren't falsely prosecuted, you have to have a system where guilty people are vigorously defended. So I defend the guilty in order to make sure that the innocent are protected, because once you say you can't defend somebody, who is guilty, then who's going to determine guilt? That's for the jury. That's for the judge. That's for the system. It's not for the criminal defense attorney to make that judgment. We're advocates, and we advocate for our client. I, would, I don't represent people who I believe are going to commit future crimes. I don't represent organized crime, drug dealers, uh, terrorists. I don't represent people who, if I win the case, will go back on the street and endanger other people. And in the 250 or so cases I've done in my career, I can remember only two cases where people who I got to help get acquitted uh, or did something in the, in the future. One of them was a man who was falsely accused of murder, and I got his murder conviction uh, reversed, and he went free. 
And then he was arrested for nude swimming in Jones Beach, New York. And wasn't even a misdemeanor. It was a violation. He paid his $10 fine. And the other was O.J. Simpson, who was acquitted of uh, a murder, which many people think he committed, or a double murder. And then he was charged and convicted with what I thought was a very minor crime, trying to retrieve his uh, memorabilia from somebody who had stolen it from him. But because he had been acquitted of the original uh, murder charge, uh, the judge threw the book at him, and he got sentenced to a very, very harsh uh, sentence. He's now um, out of prison. But I've been fortunate for the most part. My clients have not uh, committed crimes after I've helped get them acquitted. Uh, I would feel terrible if they did, but I'd feel terrible if I were a doctor and I saved the life of somebody and that person then went out and became a serial murderer or did some terrible, terrible things. Or if I were a priest and I had failed to report my penitent and then he went out and committed terrible, terrible crimes. So, you know, we, we operated a system where everybody is entitled to a defense and everybody means everybody, whether they're guilty or innocent. There are rules. You can't put a guilty person on the witness stand and have them deny the crime if you know they're guilty and if you know they're going to commit perjury. But other than those rules, it's very salutary for defense attorneys to continue to represent zealously people who may be guilty, innocent, or somewhere in between. Hello, my name's Jana, and my question concerns President Biden. It appears he may be having cognitive difficulties and I was just wondering that if he steps down voluntarily or the 25th Amendment is invoked successfully, will that put in jeopardy the executive orders he has signed? Thank you. First of all, I fundamentally disagree with you about President Biden's cognitive abilities. I've known President Biden. I knew him as Senator Biden for um, probably um, 40 years. I have seen no change. No change. Uh, he was never the most, you know, articulate, fluid person. Um, he always was like he is today. Um, and I don't see any change in his cognitive skills. So I don't believe, absent some horrible um, medical issue, that he will either resign or uh, have the 25th Amendment invoked against him. If that were to happen, and of course we have procedures for that, where president dies, becomes disabled— if he were no longer president and Vice President Harris would have become the president, all of his executive orders would remain in place unless they were rescinded by the then president. Uh, the, the president has the power to rescind previous executive orders and create new executive orders. If it were Vice President uh, Harris, I doubt she would tamper with uh, uh, President Biden's executive orders. But uh, it's a hypothetical. I don't think it's going to happen. Professor Dershowitz, I'm so not worthy, but I do have a quick question. Trump seeks to prevent the Republican National Committee from using his name or likeness to raise funds that he says they'll use to finance his political opponents in the party. Would you please suggest how this might play out under the rule of law? I'm asking for a friend. Thanks. Bye. It's a very, very difficult question. Uh, normally, under the laws of many states, you have a right to prevent your photograph likeness name from being used uh, for fundraising and other uh, purposes. But in many states, that's not the case. And if you're a public figure, they can use your likeness and your name. Uh, that issue is now going to be litigated, by the way, in the Woody Allen case, 
because uh, Woody Allen apparently is considering uh, suing um, whatever HBO put on the show because they use uh, his uh, book and they use his voice without authorization reading from the book. They don't use it just instantaneously to make a point. They use it fairly pervasively. So uh, I don't know uh, whether uh, former President Trump will prevail or not. It is a public issue, public interest. Um, He was the Republican uh, candidate for president of the United States on two occasions, and maybe the Republicans have the right to use his image. Um, I, I couldn't predict the outcome of this case. I think it would be a very interesting case under the law, under the First Amendment, under the right of privacy. One of these cases that if I was still teaching, I might give as a hypothetical to the law students. So think about it. I have no I have no conclusory answer. I have no definite answer. It's uh, something that I think is up in the end. An important part of the Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.